Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening. You are listening to The Shift. I am your host, Doug McKenty. This is episode nine of The Shift, recorded on August 19th, 2017. If you like what you're hearing, think about becoming a patron. That's patreon.com backslash The Shift. If you want to learn more, check out my Facebook page at The Shift with Doug McKenty. Join the conversation on Twitter at McKenty. Or check out my website at theshiftnow.com for archives or any other information about the show. My guest today is Adam Kokesh, a prominent libertarian political activist currently in the early stages of mounting an election campaign for President of the United States in 2020 on a platform calling for the dissolution of the federal government. After serving a tour of duty in Iraq with the United States Marine Corps, Adam became an active participant in Iraq Veterans Against the War. As a result of his activism, he has been arrested multiple times for participation in nonviolent actions, including dancing without a permit at the Thomas Jefferson Memorial in 2011, and more controversial for loading a shotgun on Freedom Plaza in 2013. As an avid supporter of the Second Amendment, Adam organized the Open Carry March on Washington, leading to yet another arrest at a pro-marijuana legalization rally in Philadelphia, also in 2013. He may be best known for his work on the nationally syndicated talk show Adam vs. the Man, which had a short stint on RT America before getting canceled as a result of Adam's endorsement of Ron Paul for president. While spending time in jail, Adam was able to put pen to paper writing a modern libertarian manifesto simply entitled Freedom, which is available online at thefreedomline.com. Adam, welcome to the program and thank you for helping to make the shift. Well, thank you for the opportunity and for that beautifully thorough introduction. I couldn't have said nicer things about myself if I made them up myself. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. I hope all those things are true. Right. Well, uh, why don't you just in your own words give us a little bit about your background, uh, how you got into political activism, what motivates you, what's going on right now, anything off the top of your head? Well, I, I really started it as an anti-war activist. and. I enlisted in the Marine Corps when I was 17 years old. And part of it was that I wanted to be the first kid on my block with a confirmed kill. The propaganda worked on me. And it was really only recently, even though I've been a full-time activist now for 10 years, that I realized a lot of what drove me to insecure, drove me to the military was a, a sense of insecurity. My parents divorce. Um, I was a virgin when I enlisted. I was a virgin until I was 19. Um, and that insecurity led me to think, well, hey, if I enlist in the Marine Corps, I'm going to get smoke blown up my butt and women are going to love me and it's going to be really easy to get laid. And right. you know, even, you know, grandmas are going to bake me apple pies every weekend. You know, like I'm, I'm going to be that guy, you know, American hero. And, and I, it's silly now in hindsight to, to have fallen for that, but that's all my recent understanding, which I didn't have at the time as I was going through it, but I was a reservist. I, my plan was to be a reservist while I went through college and then to be an officer after college. And while I was in the um, Marine Corps reserves in an artillery unit, I volunteered to go to Fallujah in 2004 with the civil affairs team and got my little slice of combat. I was in the first battle of Fallujah got my combat action ribbon, um, saw enough to, to be traumatized by it. Sure. Um, and that's a big part of what motivates me now to think back on the, the impact that that had on me. Even then, like I was, I, I called myself a libertarian, although 
by a, a good definition, I don't think I really was because I didn't understand it as a principle. I, I thought libertarianism was, you know, the best of both worlds, which is really the best of both shitty worlds of politics. <laughs> right. right. We're socially liberal and fiscally conservative. Like, no, no, that's that's not libertarianism. Those are, you know, implications or derivations from libertarianism, which is this core philosophy of self-ownership, of voluntarism, of the non-aggression principle. And what informed me, though, and, and really motivated me as an activist first as an anti-war activist was having seen people die in combat myself. And there were two particularly poignant experiences that I always like to share, which is that I carried a dying Marine into a surgical tent who had been shot uh, through the armpit hole in his flak jacket and it severed an artery near his spine. So he, he died from internal bleeding mm -hmm. and uh, having known him a little bit and um, been there holding the stretcher saying, Hey, you're going to be okay. We made it. You're going to be okay. And then find out that he died, you know, just a couple of minutes later, but you know, even, even more so being in touch with, in, in hindsight, the, the deaths of Iraqis that I witnessed there. But there was one other thing, which was that during the siege of Fallujah, there were a couple of young Iraqis trying to get out of the city and, you know, who could blame them when the uh, city's under fire with Spectre C-130 gunships, which is basically artillery from the sky continuously or almost continuously. And they were captured trying to get out. And I was called to guard them for a shift. And it wasn't really a big deal. It wasn't part of my job. I was there in civil affairs. and I really wanted to help people. But that night, I was told to do a four-hour shift with these two detainees who had sandbags over their heads and their, their hands, you know, zip cuffed behind their backs. And they were forced to sit cross-legged on a cement floor. And by the time I got there, they had been there for 12 hours, roughly. Mm -hmm. Not allowed to get up to go to the bathroom, to move, to stretch, anything. And if you don't think that's torture, I just dare you to go sit on a cement floor for an hour without moving your legs. It's torture. For sure. And I taught myself Arabic to be better at my job at helping uh, the Iraqi people. And that night I ended up using it to taunt them, to keep them awake. That was my job was to, to, uh, to, to carry out uh, sleep deprivation torture. Mm -hmm. But by then they were, they were already sitting in their own excrement and were, were in a pretty uh, nasty, sorry state. So the idea that, that war and government can, you know, take what for me were such genuine good intentions and pervert them to that is uh, just what has given me the, I, I suppose, the depth and a, a sense of the depth of the evil that is government. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to me. The, one of the reasons why I had you on the show is because I've been trying to deal with how I'm going to produce this program and, and get beyond the left right paradigm, because I'm finding that I mean, in my own personal political activism here in Northern California, that this is really getting in the way. I mean, everybody is fighting each other and nobody is fighting the corruption that I see from government. And I just recently had a conversation with a lady named Rianne Eisler, who kind of outlined the, the traditional or typical view of, of the democratic socialist, which is that we have a care, you know, we care about the people. We, um, 
You know, we want to set up a government that cares about the people and provides all of these social programs and these social, you know, systems that help everybody out because the government can be used to help out this way. So I wanted to have you on to kind of counterbalance that perspective, but then maybe even, I think you've probably thought about this as well. Like, how do you transcend the left-right paradigm then uh, in terms of actually on-the-ground political activism? But... Um, Hold on, before you throw anything at anything more, go ahead. Yeah, because you just—that's a lot. I know, right? I'm I'm, I'm (laughs) all these answers. I just want to throw at you from from all of that. Well, let's Um, hear it. First of all, with people on the left, as you mentioned, um, who think that they want uh, government to care—that as democratic socialists, uh, that caring for people is what motivates them—I don't want to really dispute that. That 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 they're not motivated by caring, and and I think that's really important. I think right now. Uh, especially after the era of Ron Paul, the greatest opportunity to grow the movement for freedom is, is from people coming in from the left. And the way that we bring them in is by making this message more inclusive. And, and I'll come back to that. But what I would say to those people is that if you really cared, you would care enough to challenge your own dogma and study economics and study philosophy and study ethics with an open mind. And you'll see that relying on institutions of violence and coercion, which is to say governments, except perhaps very decentralized local governments, right, mm-hmm. that, that that is counterproductive, that that, that is so short-sighted that, that it, is, it, it, is, it, it, it almost stretches the credulity of your integrity that you say that this is based on caring, therefore we need a big centralized government. But that's not most people on the left. And I don't think that's most people who identify as social Democrats. I think rightfully so. Most people don't care that much about government and politics, and they really shouldn't. And that's a good thing. Like that's we should, right, like, right. If our answer is we should have a nonviolent, stateless society as our ideal goal, the last thing we should be telling people is, yeah, you need to care more about politics. You need to watch the <laughs> right. You need to pay attention to how bad you're getting screwed. Like, oh, come on. No, so we have to make it easy for people. We have to make it inclusive. And so this is the shift that we're bringing about within the Libertarian Party. And I I think the Libertarian movement as a whole with the tour that I'm on right now, the uh, Taxation is Theft Tour. If I may get in my plug, thefreedomline.com slash calendar. We're in Salt Lake City right now and tonight, and we've got 60 more out of 68 cities to go on this tour over the next three months. So please join us, come out and be a part of this. Nice. Part of the shift is away from the Libertarian Party and the movement even being a debate club to being a real political force. And the way that we do that is being more true to our principles, not less. And we can get everything we want when we are true to our principles. We don't have to compromise. We don't have to sell out. We don't have to choose one or the other. So here's the thing. Someone asked me about this campaign. This is, It started as a joke. My, uh, my not campaign manager really hates when I tell this story. Right. <laughs> uh, the, I, it was Jason Burmis in uh, 2012 at the Bilderberg meeting in Virginia, and he, it was in some sort of, you know, conversation where he goes, "Oh, he, oh yeah, well, what, what would you do if you were president?" And I was like, uh, "Quit, go home, and get a real job. Like, it's <laughs> yeah, a, right. the presidency shouldn't exist. We have like the <laughs> internet and technology and like a nonviolent means of of resolving conflict. Like, no, this is ridiculous. We don't need a president. We don't need a violent monopoly." And it, it just restored it as a, as a smart-ass answer. And people started asking me serious questions. Oh, well, what would you do about this? Well, how would you do this? And it was like, this is a joke. You're not supposed to 
questions, but fine, I'll indulge you. And, you know, next thing you know, I had all the answers. I had a serious platform and I had a practical way of doing this. And if you think about all of the transitions of governance that have happened in human history, the idea of dissolving a, a strong central government to the decentralized states of the United States is, is really not that big of a shift. And if anything, what we're saying is our message to the American people when we get the nomination in 2020 is we can do this the easy way or the hard way. The hard way is the collapse, mm, is ignoring right. these problems. The easy way is let's come up with a solution as big as the problem. And so to bring it back to your question here about the appeal of this, if we make the Libertarian Party about practical solutions that make everyone's life better immediately, then everybody can get on board with this, whether or not they're libertarian. And, and this is one of the amazing things. One of the uh, ob objections I thought we would get a lot more of is wouldn't we need the military to keep us safe? And I think most people realize at some degree, one, it's not really necessary in the age of the Internet. But two, that having a military makes us less safe. And I'm not going to like I can prove that it's in my book. It's irrefutable mm -hmm. it's by the founders of this country, not the framers. The founders were against a standing army entirely. And they were right in that regard. Right. But we're not getting that objection that much. But what I say is if you're if you're a liberal and you live in a liberal state and you're a conservative and you live in a conservative state and I can't convince you that you should be free. I can't convince you that you should not be governed by anyone. Fine. You want to be governed. You want to be ruled. Okay. Would you rather be governed locally where your voice and your vote have a chance of mattering mm -hmm. or by some asshole in some far off capital who clearly doesn't care about you? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. One of the things that I've done here in Mendocino County, we work on uh, to, to actually to try to get the left and the right together is this what's called the community rights movement, where you can actually start local initiatives that then write in this community rights language that empowers the your local government. Because, you know, unfortunately, all the I mean, I think a lot of the corruption comes uh, from the fact that they have centralized. I mean, you know, corrupt people try to centralize power so that they only have to to corrupt a handful of people at the top of the pyramid. I mean, the more decentralized things are, then the easier it is to avoid corruption. You know your friend next door, if you have a local government and he's shysting you, then you know you can go talk to him and tell him, hey, this, is, this isn't fair. You shouldn't treat everybody like this. When the guy is in Washington, D.C., you don't even see what's going on. Then the corruption just becomes endemic, which is, I think, what everybody's realizing. I mean, that's the thing here, right? Everybody is realizing how corrupt it is, and it's amazing how challenging it is to confront the corruption and and expose it for what it is and then make the change. I actually, I mean, I know that so many people are on this Trump, like there must be so many racist, misogynist, uh, you know, um, anti-gender, anti-sexual orientation people out there who voted for this neo-Nazi Trump. And I just actually think that most people voted for Trump because they were hoping he was going to do what he said and eliminate the corruption. Uh, and probably because they were hoping for peace with Russia and that's why the guy gets himself elected. And, and I don't even I don't know. I don't know how the system can turn it into this. They, they have turned it into this huge left right now race riots, huge issue, you know, and you're just like, wait a minute. This is the farthest thing from a solution. <laughs> so you're running um, as a part of the Libertarian Party. Is that you've just you're going in with the apparatus that's already exists there with the Libertarian Party and you want to become their presidential nominee? That's correct. 
And what are the kinds of things that you would see would be actual practical solutions? I mean, we've heard the first one. One of the things that I've been thinking of as I read your book and was preparing for the interview was, you know, as libertarians, because we get, you know, the socialists are from the left all the time. Oh, you know, single payer health care, um, you, you know, paid leave, maternity leave, things like the, these kinds of practical solutions. And when I was reading your book, you know, you were really outlining a few things from this libertarian perspective um, that were very practical that seemed to be like, huh, yeah, let's let's think about these. And, um, for example, you know, dealing with the Federal Reserve, I think, is on top of the list. Uh, and the centralized currency cartel, but then um, the your conversation about intellectual property rights. I mean, these are the real ways. You know, the left wing is always talking about how capitalism will inevitably cause the centralization of the means of production in the hands of a few. I think from the libertarian perspective, you're saying, well, the government is what centralizes the means of production for these corrupt individuals. Um, and so, how do you stop that centralization from happening? I thought your your um, the stuff about intellectual property rights was really important. It's one of the ways that they use the government to really enforce their monopoly on, you know, the stuff that they're producing on, on the inventions that people make. So could you elaborate on the solutions side of things? Sure. Well, if I may go back just on my last answer to be able to give you a little more precision on that, uh, mm -hmm. I've been a lifetime member of the Libertarian Party since uh, I got back from Iraq and could afford it for the first time. And I've been uh, on and off, pretty consistently engaged with the with the party in different ways since then. Uh, but to, to your question, first, the intellectual property thing, that's usually a, a challenging one for a lot of people to wrap their heads around because it's, right. it's a big abstract issue. And it, it's for some people, it's really simple, but I don't know, maybe I'm slow. You know, it was one of those ones for me. You know, I really had to study. I really had to think about. I, I really had to challenge my own paradigm to accept that intellectual property except as a private property construct based on contracts is is an unethical concept is, is you know the, the idea of intellectual property is directly contrary to an ethical concept of real physical property mm -hmm. and it is one of those things that people will essentially have to give up when they give up big centralized governments but it's going to be a good thing and if you look at all the things that people bitch about related to intellectual property. Software is expensive, movies suck, music is industrialized and commercialized. The know. healthcare industry, your your drugs, your medications, it's huge. Pharmaceuticals, thank mm -hmm. you, that's even bigger, yes. that's as, as a life and death one, that's even more important than your entertainment, right? And I think people are, are ready for that. You know, what we see on the internet is other mechanisms of respecting creative product. And I think that's a that's a much better way of describing it than intellectual property, because there, there are it is a thing that you are creating. But to claim ownership of it as an idea is uh, is, is contrary to human progress. And it's fundamentally unethical because in a way you're claiming credit for the work that someone else has done because there's no creative product that you can produce that isn't somehow built off the ideas of people who have gone before you. You know, you wrote a book, right. you didn't invent the language, you didn't come up with the words, the grammar, the, you know, the, the, all of that, right? Even that fundamentally, you wrote a song, you didn't invent the notes or the musical system, someone else did. Are you paying them royalties? No, because that would be silly. Well, when you think about it, trying to claim any kind of intellectual property uh, on, on anything is is just as silly and yet somehow 
has become entrenched in, in society today, largely thanks to the American government leading this global intellectual property racket that has become uh, a, a part of the scam of global governments that is uh, an important accessory to their means of control. So, you know, decentralizing government, in this case, dissolving the United States federal government is, uh, you know, is uh, a great way to address that without really having to have that debate. Similarly, the drug war, it's nice to say, hey, the drug war's over, we dissolve the federal government, but no, if a state wants to carry on the drug war in some silly way, hey, I can't say as part of my platform that I can do anything about that. Yeah. But uh, and, and that for the time being, as we move forward, as we progress localizing, we should respect the rights of states of their self-determination to set their own drug policy for the time being. Although I would d be highly disrespectful of anything that's unethical in, in any way. Um but what, what's really cool about this process is that you eliminate all the federal drug laws. If they want to make something illegal now, they kind of have to, in most states at least, come up with their own new laws and their own mechanisms of enforcing it. So it puts it puts the burden of proof where it should be. You want government. You want a violent monopoly. All right, prove how it's a good idea. Prove how not just continuing this process of localization down, respecting the rights of individuals and communities is, is a good thing. And they're going to have to, to come out and, and prove from scratch. You know that that marijuana is dangerous, or that you know even even making any drug illegal is is good for society. So that's really one of the cool things. Another cool thing is as part of this process, we get to release all of the records. No more secrets. Mm -hmm. We finally find out once and for all whether the Earth is round or flat. Because I know, yeah. <laughs> I know you've been waiting <laughs> right. for those pictures. I know the government is sitting on some pictures, but but seriously, JFK, 9/11. Um, you know, the, the, the Gulf of Tonkin, the, the things that we know about, Bay of Pigs. I mean, you could go back, Lusitania, uh, the Maine, all, all of these things. We get to find out at least a lot closer to the truth than, than what we have now. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a conspiracy realist. I don't right. really care to figure out the details about any particular conspiracy. I think it's a waste of time. But you have to understand that Government is, yes, how people conspire to screw others over. <laughs> this these, these, these rackets don't make themselves by accident. And and so, um, I don't know. Did that answer your question? I'm sorry if, if you were trying to go somewhere else with that, Doug. No, that's perfect. I mean, um, I, I think that notion of, well, I mean, I, I, I could go anywhere with this, but the idea that a conspiracy is happening, well, of course rich people are conspiring to gain power and wealth for themselves. And it, and. I, you know, every everything that I see points to the government as the primary tool that they use to make that happen. And one of the ways that you touched upon this idea of transparency, I mean, my God, I mean, not just with the intellectual property rights where there's just patent after patent after patent. And unless you're paying attention to the patents, you don't know what has been invented and what's being protected, what's being hidden inside those corporate coffers inside the patent office that really could be beneficial to mankind. Oh, yeah. Well, you just gave me a, a, a great other selling point idea for this. You get rid of all the intellectual property restrictions. You are finally going to see a true manufacturing boom in America again. Yeah, right, right. I mean, who knows? I mean, there, there's this idea of planned obsolescence. These corporations keep, you know, they keep um, really beneficial uh, evolutionary concepts from getting out there because the old way is working for them. And as long as the, whatever your, your phone breaks down once every year and you got to buy another one, why are they going to sell you the phone that lasts forever or the car that gets, I mean, that's a classic, right? The car that gets a hundred miles to the gallon. They don't, yep. the oil companies don't want you to do that or the car that runs on water, or, you know, 
And so they're really keeping a lot of this technology from us. But also, as you were alluding to before, I mean, the whole classification of documents that the government does. So our history is essentially classified. I mean, if you want to try to know the truth about anything, well, they've got it, you know, buried in an FBI file somewhere and they're not letting it out because truth is power. Right. And if they know the truth and we don't, then we're just, you know, we're doing what they're telling us and we don't know any better. (laughs) Exactly. Um, You know, that can get us to another thing I wanted to talk about with you. Well, and you alluded to this, too. It's funny because all of us have our uh, I think if you if you follow down this path of libertarianism, you, you get to certain roadblocks. I mean, for me, I remember thinking about the currency thing. Well, of course, the government has to create the currency. I mean, there's no way we could have competing currencies that exist in a free market. And that one took me a long time to wrap my head around. And now I'm just like, well, the currency is the racket. I mean, this is the racket. You know, I mean, this is how we're all debt slaves because of the currency racket that a handful of bankers have been able to create through this Federal Reserve mechanism by using the government to enforce their monopoly. I mean, that is a huge issue. And it was the like you say, like, you know, once you're awake to it, you see it. You're like, oh, it's obvious. But before, you know, there's a block to it. And this is because um, to a great extent of the propaganda, I think you dedicated a few chapters in your book to government propaganda, government education. I mean, we all go through this whole thing so that we're basically brainwashed and we don't know, you know, how to think outside of this government box. So. You got any ideas about about all of this you want to talk about? Well, I'd like to to respond to that directly with with the sort of evolution of my thought on it, which brings it back to this point of, uh, you know, 90 percent of the population is just never going to care about these issues that the way that we do. And that's okay, And we need to accept that. And, And in that sense, there's kind of a limit to education. Now, when you talk about education of the massive population in general and shifting in information becoming more widely available for the internet, you want to call that education? Yes, absolutely. And that is critical and and integral to uh, human progress. But when it's education about political philosophy and the stuff that we're talking about, uh, there there is kind of a limit. I I think this movement that right now is about, you know, half a percent of the population, maybe a little more, two million or so of us in the United States, um, should be somewhere between five and 10% right now. You know, if the the resources that this movement has invested in spreading this message had been better directed, and I have some ideas about this, if anybody wants to make any uh, major investments, things that would not profit me at all directly, I have some ideas. If someone wants to get into that, you can always email me, adam at thefreedomline.com. But I, I don't think that uh, you know, trying to win over everybody or educate everybody about this is necessary. I think we're going to be able to bring about the major shift that we desire if we embrace localization, if we get our movement up to the critical mass. So I would say within the political realm, um, you know, like the John McCain types, you know, we don't have to worry about them. We're going to out-organize <laughs> them. They're, gonna, they're, they're dying off, and and that's you know that's that's okay. That's part of human progress too. And especially the younger generation doesn't have the same attachment to statism. And, and um, if I can get them to just come out and vote once and say, yeah, we, we would be better off without the federal government. And then maybe one more time to say, yeah, we'd be better off without our state government. And then you have government fully 
decentralized down at the county. I know that's not perfect, but more or less at the community level, that's all we need people to engage. And other than that, like we should be telling them, you know, we love you. Go have a good life. Enjoy life. Don't be bogged down. Don't be angry like us, you know, like, right. don't get, and, and I, I, I'm past the anger. Yes. But, you know, I do get angry and that's, that's a big part of what motivates me. And I, I got to be honest about that, that I, you know, seeing that, that, that I am an activist, I am motivated by a deep seated sense of injustice. And, and, and I know not everybody shares that. That's OK. But if people can hear me long enough to say, yeah, we'll come out and vote once, we'll come out and vote twice. Cool. That's it. Let's make it easy for them. Let's we, we let's wake up the people who are ready for this, who we need on our team to help make this happen. The low hanging fruit, the the conscientiously anti-authoritarian, I think 10 percent of the population that's really ready to hear this message. Mm-hmm. And then let's make it a force. Let's make this happen because, uh, you know, humanity's ready for this. Yeah, I did an interview one time uh, about a book. This is an interesting book. You might look it up. It's called Political Ponerology. Ponerology means mm. the study of evil. And it was written by a psychologist in Hungary who was there during World War II and then when the Iron Curtain came over. And, um, you know, he found himself in the behind the Iron Curtain um, in this very oppressive totalitarian communist society. And he was just wondering, like, how in the hell did this happen? And he came to the same conclusion, basically, that what you just said, that 10 percent number. Ten percent of the people believed in the communist ideal. And they that was enough to shift the entire society because it is true. Mm -hmm. It's only a small percentage of people that really want to be political act politically active. And the rest of the people are just interested in doing their, their work. You know, I look at it as some people, you know, that's if I may just to to, to jump in there, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. It it is, it is really important because I know you have people who listen to this program who are more of a political activism inclination uh, to be humble in this regard right. to not think, well, we're the leaders because we're the political ones. We're, you know, no, this is one dimension of the human experience. And and if I may, the example that I like to use to embarrass my audiences on this tour, spoiler alert, uh-huh. is that I'll say, <laughs> how many of you designed the cut of the shirt that you're wearing right now? And usually there's one smart ass who raises his hand, but it's nobody, right? <laughs> nobody. Right. And, I, and I say, if I was here giving a talk about fashion and design, I could look down my nose at all of you and say, what a bunch of little sheeple you are. What <laughs> right. a bunch of followers. You know, we are not, and that's, hey, we're not leaders in fashion and design. We're leaders in politics. This is what we're passionate about. This is what we care about. Yes, we need to lead more people in this. In fashion, we're followers. In auto design, we're followers. In architecture, we're followers. In, you know, produce, yeah, right. we're followers. Right. Specialization of labor, that's okay. And, and I think that's important for us. To, to embrace that as as political activists, we are leaders. We are taking charge as the critical mass of society who cares about these things and can show people the way forward. And, and it is really important to respect that there may be, other, like while we see this as the most important thing, for some people with their values and what's important to them, artificial intelligence, developing the internet, finding a cure for cancer, ending world hunger, poverty, you right. know, that those things <laughs> to them are more important. And well, I, I and think you need to celebrate all of those positive things that are, you know, moving humanity forward. And, and even uh, raising children, you know, having a family. Uh, these are things that take your mind away from whatever, you know, po- politics or, or the bigger picture of yep. things. I mean, and that's, at, at, I mean, at, at least maybe the most important thing that you can do, right? Raise, raise a family. So, 
Um, you know, I know <laughs> that's what my wife tells me when she's tired of listening to me rant all day about this stuff. <laughs> and she's like, you know, can't you just help me <laughs> to, to get the kids, uh, you know, out to school or whatever? <laughs> Cause I mean, that's a whole other part of life too. It's uh, an important part of the conversation. Absolutely. Um, let's kind of shift over then. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, maybe the concept of corporatism. Cause you mentioned this in your book as well. And I think this is a big misconception I get when I'm talking to socialists is that they seem to believe that, you know, quote unquote, capitalists are proponents of this corporate system, that the corporation and this corporate system is what capitalism is. It's like a, I mean, I, you know, as, as a libertarian, no libertarian thinks like this, but socialists really believe that all people on the quote unquote right are just supportive of this corporatist system. So you want to, you want to talk about that a little bit, that misconception? Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's kind of a deliberate misrepresentation. I I totally agree. I can't agree more. Yeah. I think that's done deliberately to prevent good conversations. (laughs) You know, I'll, I'll jump out here with a a sort of scary answer for some libertarians. I wrote a blog post recently called can communist be a type of libertarian. Mm -hmm. And I think it can, if your ideals of communism are voluntary and local and you don't want a large centralized state forced on people, but you want a community organized economically around your values and it's a voluntary society and you want to respect other people's right to organize in their communities the way that they want, then I think that makes you a type of libertarian. If you're a socialist, same thing. A localist, you know, same thing. Um, and, and being able to understand that libertarianism is about nonviolence first and foremost is really important. So capitalism – I don't think the definition of capitalism itself is wrong. And the, the typical commonly accepted definition is an economic system based on ownership of the means of production. Now, where we go wrong with the understanding of this is, is was so, uh, I think, misunderstood by so many proponents of cap, excuse me, of communism throughout history when they looked at the current system is that they uh, allowed the people like like how government says this is freedom in America today, and it's like uh, no, it's it's obviously not. Right. But um, so the you know governments used to say this is capitalism, isn't this great? You know, and it's like no, that's that's corporatism. And mm-hmm. what what needs to be understood here, and I think the way that communists have played into this, and I'm not an expert here, but sort of intellectually, historically, is to distort. What is the means of production? And this is where libertarianism offers a much better and more humane understanding and a more inclusive one. One of the chapters in the book is everything is economics. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that everything can be assessed as an exchange or creation or preservation of value. Everything can be assessed in terms of of value, moving, possessions, ownership, or creation, destruction, with or without ownership. Economics is that broad of a subject. But to understand capitalism, you have to define means of production properly. And the misinterpretation here, like I said, it's not in the definition itself. It's in the interpretation of what is the means of production. It has been misrepresented as factories and corporations and, and things like that as opposed to the reality of the of those words 
means of production. What do we produce with? Our minds and our bodies. Mm -hmm. The ultimate means of production is the individual human being. And if your self-ownership is not respected, then you don't have capitalism. And the other thing about right. this is that it is how we measure production. And this is where understanding everything as economics is so important because when we only count what is enumerated in dollars or in whatever currency as economics, we're missing sight uh, or losing sight of all of the other great, what we would call intangibles, but the other things of real concrete specific value that cannot be counted in dollars. So what is the ultimate metric of production? It's not dollars, it's not widgets, it's not the bottom line, it's human happiness. Right, totally. When you, when you give people the right to enjoy self-ownership, to flourish in their own will, that is what makes real human happiness possible. This is really fascinating to me because this is the most important what you're just describing right now is was the most important aspect of what Rianne Eisler, the the social democrat that I just interviewed, was talking about in that in that interview was that oh and and from her point of view, from her perspective it was like oh capitalism just just um measures things based on the dollar value and that um you know there but there's actually called it the caring economy like um raising children that don't get you know put into the gdp or helping your elders or you know doing these other things so what what is actually starting to like i it, it's shocking to me i to prepare for this interview i watched uh, and these this series of interviews i watched um this guy uh, peter joseph from the zeitgeist movement mm -hmm. and he did a debate with steve stefan molyneux the, the canadian libertarian who's got that that show uh that internet show and um it, it was like it was amazing how often they agreed you know the, so the zeitgeist movement um peter is a more of a socialist a socialist well, I, kind I, of a utopian i've debated right. it myself yeah, nice. And then and then Stefan was sort of the capitalist or the free market advocate. And it was like they they agreed on almost everything except for then there was just a handful of things that they couldn't, you know, it was almost like they misunderstood each other and then they couldn't even get along at all. You, you know, like what's yeah. I, I'm, I'm trying to nail down what's going on that suddenly you can't get along at all. Because, <laughs> you know, you, you because of just something in your mind that is like, no, the socialists think that capitalists are, you know, trying to take over the world and it can only result in a complete tyranny of the of. <laughs> um, it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. Yeah, right, right. So I then I I want to I just wanted to kind of explain that because it's just becoming more and more shocking to me how much the left and the right do agree on almost everything and somehow we just have to get over the stuff that we disagree about so that we can start to deal with all of this corruption directly. Um, but one of the things That's, that you're yeah, talking about, I, I'm saying no. Let's make it easier. Let's make it even easier. Uh -huh. Let's not argue the role of government. Yeah. Should government do this or that or the other? I don't care. Right. As long as you keep your community. Can we can we dissolve the federal government and state governments and get, get government localized is the first step? Can I live free, unincorporated on my land in, in, in Arizona in the mountains? Can I have my 10 acres and really be sovereign? Can right. I can I, can we do that? Can, you can have your community. You can have you want socialism in your area or communism in your area or whatever form of government you want. If you don't, you know, you don't force on anybody else. It's not a, a geographically enclosed space. It's a discreetly described space based on private property. Then, hey. 
I don't, I don't have a problem with that. We don't have to argue. Well, let's just move forward to that vision where everybody gets what they want. How about that? Yeah, completely. I uh, I was going to bring this up too. I'm on this um, this Facebook page, uh, Compassionate Anarchy is what it's called. And it's a place where actually like communist anarchists and capitalist anarchists are both members of this thing. And they're constantly arguing back and forth <laughs> about... Um, you know, what's the, what is real anarchy? Is it the communist utopia or the capitalist utopia? And I do find it interesting because most capitalists are like, quote unquote, capitalist anarchists are, are like, I don't, you know, join your commune. What's the problem? Yeah. And, and yeah. the communists seem to have something about it that they're just like, no, if you're like, if you're using money at all, then you're automatically involved in a slave system and you're just a slave. And it's like, well, if I choose to use money because it's more convenient for me, what's the problem? I don't know. I don't I don't know. I wish I could understand it. I mean, because I, if I could, then maybe I could get along. Maybe we could be working together, you know, get getting beyond this. But I can't agree with you more about the localize it. I mean, just start to look the more we can localize power then the more that, hey, we can have these arguments on a community level. And, and, we, and it's also easier to even see if my community has a socialized health care system and it's working really well for our people, then that's great. I mean, you know, in the, in the community next door, it's also a lot easier mm -hmm. to move. You know, one of the arguments that I get when I talk about this with people, the community, the community rights ideas, is that, and even Rianne Eisler brought this up when I talk about localization with her, she said, well, what happens when your community decides to, you know, make homosexuality illegal or ban all black people from being there? So she they you know, she seemed to want to kind of grow like there are these universal human rights that have to be enforced from above. How do you respond to that one? Because that's something that I get a lot. Yeah, there's there's a really easy answer to this. And some people have said that, uh, Adam, you know, if you get government down to the local level, all the racists are going to band together in their own little communities. And I go. Yeah, right. That's a good thing. <laughs> the rest of us don't have to deal with them, uh, yeah, yeah, and they'll so. soon realize on their own that that utopia that they are pursuing is not in their best economic interests or mental health interests. And the sooner they figure out that, the better. And forced integration is not going to help that process whatsoever. Yeah. So yeah, and and like honestly, if uh, you know. 10 people want to go out in the wilderness and homestead 10 acres each and build their little community and say no gays allowed. And they all agree to that. And their, their sanction against gays isn't violently kidnapping them and bringing them into that community. It's forcefully expelling them from their private property. I, you know, I, I'm, I don't respect their right to do that, but they do have a right to do that. And I'm not going to use that as a, at my, difference in preference for my association as an excuse to use force upon them i'm going to stop short at mercilessly mocking them on the internet so that hopefully they'll get the right. idea <laughs> that, 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 that banning gays you know or being uninclusive is not good but you know the way at that point is going to be we're going to have inclusive places where people are getting along and it's a big party and people are happier and more productive and more prosperous and we're going to show that racism is a losing economic strategy right that's yeah. the ultimate that's the ultimate defeat of that. You know, like, again, if, if you want to force everybody into a collective, you're actually encouraging racism. And, and this was a subject of my Facebook Live yesterday and, and why I was doing an interview with Jeff Berwick right before this. He really wanted to get into this idea that governments cause racism. Mm -hmm. And if you understand that, yes, there's a sort of underlying layer of 
prejudice, you know, and understanding differences between races and, you know, not hatred at all. But, you know, people, you know, we can make fun of each other for different you know, racial things. We can, uh, you know, celebrate our differences in different cultures and different ethnicities and all of these things. You know, that that's fine. There's that. But what and some people would say, well, that's racism if you want to take a really inclusive definition. But racism really, I think, means more when that is, you know, elevated to hatred or disdain. And if you don't force people into collectives, you don't have a reason for people to do that. You don't have a reason to play off people's insecurities. If you didn't have forced collectivism in the first place, if government did not make that an accepted thing, racism wouldn't be an issue. Right. It wouldn't be promoted by government. It wouldn't be encouraged by government. It wouldn't be leveraged by government. And all of the things that government uses to beat people down and make them feel insecure and inadequate as individuals that leads them to racial identification, all of those insecurities, all of those main motivators go away. We get a society that's much more mentally healthy. And so it's going to be a lot less uh, despondent, a lot less desperate, a lot less uh, fear-based and led to the kind of identity and, and race-based politics that we see making, I think, a, a small, I don't know, I want to put this in, in perspective very carefully and not try to blow up what's happening right now, because it really is on the scale of things insignificant. I mean, right. it is, uh, how many, you know, how big is the alt-right? I mean, maybe that you get inclusive, whatever. But, you know, what? a couple hundred people came out in Charlottesville. Okay, you know, what's Antifa? <laughs> you know, I, people that Milo Yiannopoulos paid to protest him so he could sell more books. Okay, fine. You know, <laughs> like, like this is not representative of America. This is not representative of, of humanity moving forwards to uh, a world of greater harmony, greater inclusiveness, and, and of course, less racism. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing. I I can't agree with you more that, I, and I also think the media loves to blow up the whole racism crisis because they get ratings too. I mean, if the you know if they're showing massive race riots on TV, then they're getting everybody stirred up and everybody's watching. So it's like, you know, instead of taking a realistic view, like okay, you know, we've got a couple hundred, you know, cr crazy people that are making a big stink right now, but it's not in the grand scheme of things, you know, they're not taking power. Not a lot of people are, are listening to them because their message is ridiculous. Um, and I think that blowing it out of proportion is, is not the healthiest way to deal with the problems that we're seeing right now. And I, I can't agree with you more about the notion that like, look, you know, not being homophobic, not, not judging a person by the color of their skin. This is a, a health decision that I make for myself because I get more out of life that way. I am like, you're talking about more productive. I have cooler parties, you know, yeah, <laughs> I, I have yeah. more fun. <laughs> um, yeah. and I, and I have a higher rate of productivity and I, you know, I mean, I have a, a thriving that exists. That's never going to exist next door in the KKK community. Um, and that's because I believe in diversity and I, and I like having it as a part of my life. And I can prove that by, you know, just hanging out. I don't have to force the KKK guys to hang out with black people, which doesn't sound like fun for either of them. You know, I don't think, uh, to make, well, hey, brother, I apologize because I know we've got a late start, but I really got to wrap this up. I got another interview coming on in a few minutes. So I just want to say again, thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. And, you know, this conversation has been really cool because it's you're getting into, you know, the the more interesting, you know, intellectual and, and principled underpinnings of what I'm doing and what motivates my activism. I'm really grateful for mm -hmm. the opportunity to share that. And of course, you see 
how I'm applying that in the bigger political context with this strategy and, and, and broadening the appeal and, and growing the movement. So I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to do that. Great. And if people can help out, this, this really is a grassroots bottom-up thing. Everything I do is made possible because people like Doug and, hey, support independent media, please. Everything you can do to support his show, share this interview, uh, share his website. But, you know, if you want to get involved with what I'm doing, thefreedomline.com, you can get my book for free there in every digital format possible, including audiobook. You can see our schedule of upcoming events for the tour if you click on calendar. And uh, you can get plugged in with everything else I'm doing on social media and everywhere else and, and help be a part of this, what I would say, instead of the shift, the, uh, the beautiful dance forward of humanity. All right, right on, Adam. Uh, you want to let people know just a little bit more where you where's the tour headed in the next couple of weeks? Uh, well, we're in Salt Lake City right now, so we've got Billings, and then Sioux Falls, Fargo, Minneapolis, um, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, Chicago, St. Louis, Indianapolis, and you know, sort of all over the northern Midwest in the next couple of weeks. And then we go up around to New England, hit, go down the East Coast and Florida, and come back. Through uh, through Texas and my original home state of uh, New Mexico, on our way home to wrapping up in Phoenix in November. All right, very cool, Adam. Well, thanks a lot for your work, and that has been Adam Kokesh right here on the Shift. Uh, if you like what you're hearing on the Shift, please check out. Uh, think about becoming a patron. Check out our Patreon page at Patreon.com/backslash/theshift. Find out more uh, about what's going on here on our Facebook page, The Shift with Doug McKenty. Join the conversation on Twitter at dmckenty or check out the website at theshiftnow.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And thanks again, Adam, for your work and for being on the show and being a part of making The Shift. Uh, have uh, a great day and good luck with the rest of your tour. Take care. Thanks, brother.